Now, this is an introductory paragraph to the book of Exodus, and it kind of invites us to ask this question, how did they end up in in Egypt to begin with? And the short answer is the providence of God. And this book actually assumes that you know the backstory of Israel, Um, providence meaning God's directive hand in the background. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but you also have a backstory. And uh, when you showed up at the tabernacle, there was a backstory to your life. And I want to ask you this question, how is it that you did end up at the tabernacle? Now, Abby and I have a backstory too. I was actually kind of sharing prior to the service some of our backstory with a family, and everyone's backstory is different. Uh, when we came to the tabernacle 12 years ago, we were very young parents looking for a place of pastoral ministry, and, but we had been to other churches, and We had different struggles of faith. We had different uh, economic challenges as young parents, and we had different kinds of drama that we had experienced in other places. But your backstory is very likely much different than mine. Some have come to the tabernacle perhaps because you've uh, encountered prior church conflict somewhere else. Maybe it was the emotional pain of a divorce that kind of prompted you towards thinking about the things of God. Maybe it was an illness that came along. Maybe you were struggling with your finances, loss of a loved one, maybe unfulfilled relational goals. You could come for a variety of reasons, and there can be a lot of influence there in the background that if you never take the time to stop and think about, you actually might miss the opportunity to reflect upon God's goodness to you through painful experiences. Whether you realize it or not, the backstory of your life is called the providence of God. Now, God's providence refers to His invisible hand that upholds, directs, disposes, and governs His creation. There's several verses that kind of emphasize this theme throughout Scripture. It's it's woven all through Scripture, and one of those, for example, is in Psalm 135, verse 6, in which we read that whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Daniel 2.21, this is the same Daniel that was put in the lion's den. God changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings, and He sets up kings. Book of Acts 17 says, Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and having determined allotted periods and boundaries to their dwelling, it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. The providence of God is something that's woven throughout all of Scripture. Old Puritan Thomas Watson said this, God is not like an architect that builds a house and then leaves it. But like a captain, he steers the ship of the whole of creation. He is actively involved with his creation, and that should come as a source of comfort to all of us. 
And in light of that, I want to ask you again, why is it or how is it that you are here at the tabernacle? And I would encourage you that you could hopefully answer that question with eyes of faith and answer, I'm here because of God's providence in my life. He has been active in the background, and I can see it. I can look back now and say, this was God's doing. It wasn't my doing. May He be praised. And I want this idea to kind of ring through our minds as we look at the backstory of Israel this morning to help set us up in the book of Exodus. I want this theme to ring within our hearts and minds is that the providence of God is what upholds, directs, disposes, and governs His creation. And we can thank Him for that, that we can glorify Him and praise Him and say thank you. He is the one who is in charge and not we ourselves. Now, famine is a key feature in the backstory of Israel. Uh, a famine is the absence of resources. Famine uh, depletes stores of bread that is so necessary for sustaining life. And in God's providence, He has at times used hardship, He has used famine to bring His people closer to Him. And so, as you reflect upon some of the hard and difficult experiences that you've faced in your backstory, I want to encourage you not to become embittered by them, but look at them with eyes of faith and say, thank you. You have brought me to this place, Lord. Thank you for your kindness to me. But everyone's backstory and coming to know and understand who God is who created the world is going to be much different. I want us to look at the backstory and see Abraham, the first in a series of generations that became the nation of Israel. Let's flip back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 for a moment. That's just one book back. That's If you're in the Red Pew Bible, that's on page 11. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Three, we hear very famous words and Abraham's call to leave his home, his country, and travel to a place that he had never been to before. He didn't know all the details of what would come, but we read in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was the tenth, the tenth generation after the worldwide flood. If you recall the worldwide flood, there were, was only one family that entered the ark, and out of that ark came three brothers, uh, sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and 
out of Shem's seed, ten generations hence, uh, Abraham was born, and Shem's descendants spread out throughout the Middle East to the area that's called the Fertile Crescent. That's that greenish area that you see on the, on the wall there, and it kind of follows very fertile areas from, the, from Egypt up and around through modern-day Israel, up to the north, to, to the Turkey and, and Syria, all the way through Iraq, down to the Persian Gulf. And Ur is that little red dot in the corner near the Persian Gulf, and that's where he grew up. It was a very fertile area near the Euphrates River. As the water brought sediment from the mountains down, it was very fertile land for him to, to, to live in. But in spite of all of the fertility, Abraham grew up in a spiritual famine. He grew up in a very pagan culture. We, don't, we do know this because we look at the names of the women in his life, and the women whose names are given have a meaning. They carry the idea of the moon goddess and her daughter. As is often the case within religious cultures, people tend to name their children after the deities or after the heroes of their faith. Paganism is the belief that there is a plethora of gods and goddesses out there who you align yourself to try to coerce them to bless you and give you favor in your life's pursuits. So what you do is you, you try to coerce them by mimicking the rituals of their story, reenacting the stories throughout the calendar year. Now, this ritual, as I said, is designed to coerce, to control, and that's what is the basis of all pagan, pagan religions. And what it is is really a self-focused religion. It's designed to give you, if you follow and do what they ask you to do, to give you your best life now so that you can be successful in all of your pursuits. Now, the Christian worldview is so radically different because it teaches us that there is actually only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, and that one mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way to salvation. And our God is different. He cannot be coerced. Rather, it is His invisible hand that upholds and directs disposes, and governs all of His creation. Now, what is coercion but the desire to get people to serve you? That selfishness, that self-centeredness. And all paganism moves in this direction. Paganism is often associated with temples and priestesses and immorality and but wherever self-centeredness occurs, there is paganism. I catch this in contrast to how God calls Abraham. Abraham calls, is called into relationship with God, and God says this, I intend to bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing to others. Notice the progression. Abraham 
didn't try to coerce God to give him blessing. Rather, God came to him and said, no, I'm going to bless you so that then you can turn around and be a blessing to others. See the direction? The non-selfish direction. And this is, I believe, the purpose of the Abrahamic promise for Abraham to be a blessing to others and to come out of the darkness of a self-absorbed worship. And that's one of the reasons God calls any of us out of the darkness of this world to know and understand Him. God's invisible hand moves and directs and governs so that we might be a people who, who love Him and love our neighbor. And so, as Abraham leaves, we follow the providence of God and the, the things that are going on in his life. And I want us to see in chapter 12, we're still there. Look at verse 10 to 20. I'm not going to read this passage per se for time's sake this morning, but I'm going to refer to the content here of how God teaches Abraham how important it is to, to depend upon His Word and not trust His own instincts, to not go beyond what God's Word says, but to lean wholly upon God alone. So, in verse 10 through 20, we, we get to, we realize that Abraham enters into the land of Canaan in time, and when he gets there, in verse 10, we learn that there is a famine in the land. And so, in verse 10, it says, and now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, Abraham, when he arrived, he was supposed to go to the land that God would show him, and so he did. He came there, he built an altar, and a disaster comes. There's this famine. What was Abraham to do? I think it's important for us to realize that sometimes when we read the Bible, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, you can cover a hundred years of Abraham's life very quickly. And you might be left with the impression that God was in constant communication with Abraham. That's not the way it was. In a hundred years of Abraham's life, God only communicated with him eight times in a hundred years. The first four of those eight times occurred in the first 25 years of his life. The three other and the fourth occur all around the arrival of his son Isaac. Outside of that, we are not told of any other times God had spoken directly to Abraham. And why is this important? Because when God speaks, what He communicates is sufficient to give us the direction that we need. Abraham had been told to enter the land. He wasn't told to leave the land. And it was a moment of testing for him, and in God's providence, there was some hardship that developed, and I think we, not, we need to realize that when hardship comes towards us, we ought not follow our intuition. We have instead a much so sure word of guidance here in the Word of God. We have way many more communications than Abraham ever had. 
And so we who have so much more guidance than Abraham, we often, so often make decisions without consulting him. But even that, God may permit us to go ahead of himself. He may allow us to make decisions that ultimately aren't the best for ourselves. The section when Egypt, when he goes down to Egypt is, is memorable from the standpoint that he, his, his wife is spied as a potential, harem, a, a potential for Pharaoh's harem. It's disastrous. Abraham uh, nearly loses his wife to Pharaoh. He even almost loses his own life. And in the process, God has to rescue Abraham and bring him back to, to, is, to, to a Canaan again. And all of this God allowed, but I do believe that what he was doing was testing the faith of Abraham. It wasn't time to go to Egypt. That was yet to come. Let's turn over to, to Genesis chapter 15, in which now after a while, Abraham had been living in the land, probably close to 25 years, and this is some of the key moments of direct communication from God to, to Abraham. Verse 12 through 21 kind of has recorded here for us the communication. But to bring you up to speed, Abraham and Sarah had experienced a famine. They had also experienced a famine of fertility. At 75 years of age, he had left everything. I know it's hard to believe 75 years of age and leaving and going to a new place. But Abraham left and went following the word of God, and he left all to travel to a country that was foreign. He had the expectation of living in that land and being blessed with offspring. And when he arrived, he lived in tents, and he had no children. And as he looked forward to God, giving him the land and giving him children, he waited, he waited, and he waited. In the meantime, wealth started to accumulate, and he began to gain vast riches, and his uh, fields could not hold all of the livestock, and his nephew who traveled with him, Lot, uh, all the herders were at, at war with one another, and they decided, well, we, we, can't, we can't continue this way, so let's dissolve this partnership. And Lot, you go to the south, and I'll stay here. You, you, you go where you want to go. And in the process, Lot moved down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And a remarkable providential event occurs. An opportunity to increase his wealth tenfold, ten lifetimes fold. Several kings form an alliance and go and attack Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot is captured in that group. Abraham musters an army, a small army of 380 men, and goes and fights and delivers Lot, kills all the kings. All the wealth that was captured was his by right, and he relinquishes it, and he says, I don't want it. And after he does that, he pours out his heart to God about his childlessness. He, he says to God, what good is it that I would have all this wealth, but I have no one to pass it on to? Would you like then, God, to me to give it to my servant Eliezer as my adopted son? And God says to him in verse 5, if you look at chapter 15, verse 5, and God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. 
if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God, and he counted to him as righteousness. What did he believe about God? He believed that God's invisible hand is able to govern the world in such a way that he can deliver upon his promises. And when God saw his heart, then God opened up to Abraham his plan about the future. God does not usually reveal this kind of detail to us. Instead, he wants us to trust upon his word and to be obedient to what he has already said. This was a very gracious thing for God to do to Abraham. And so as he, he, he looks and he hears, verse 12, as the sun went down, a, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And you will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And God, as I said, doesn't usually reveal these kinds of things. I don't know if this would have been something that would have been comfort to Abraham necessarily. I mean, I want to know that my children are going to be successful and they'll do well. I would be very potentially disturbed to know that they were going to be enslaved. And for very good reasons, sometimes God limits our knowledge about the future. It might not be encouraging. But what is grafted into this is also the hope that one day they will return to the land, they will be multiplied beyond measure, and they will be wealthy beyond measure, and they will come back and receive the promises. And what we see in this is that God's Word is irrevocable. Whenever He promises, whenever He gives direction, for example, to go to the land, that's irrevocable. Abraham went beyond and he learned a very valuable lesson. And when he came back to the land and he won the victory, he gave away the wealth, he turned to God, and he put his faith and trust in His Word as irrevocable. Do we look at God's Word whenever it is revealed to us as so important that we need to heed it, to take it, to make it a part of our hearts? God's Word is irrevocable, and He is providentially orchestrating the world to accomplish ends that He has designed. It is for His glory and also for our good. We, we don't serve a capricious God who just on a whim decides to do this or decides to do that. That's not the kind of God that we serve. He has a determined plan that He is looking through the annals of time, and He is looking to take us there. He is good, and He is a good Father, 
and we can learn to trust Him through the experiences that we experience. I'm going to jump forward quite a ways here in the book of Genesis to Genesis 26. This is after Abraham has, has died. Abraham's son Isaac has been born, and I, time fails me to kind of go through all of those details, uh, but God was working miraculously in the birth of, of Isaac. And here we have Isaac now alone. Isaac no longer has his father who has had the, the wonderful experiences of knowing God. He now is, as if it were, he's on his own. But he's not on his own because God is going to demonstrate that he's with him as a father. Verse 1 through 4, we read this. Now, there was, catch this, a famine in the land. And besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, Moses, who's recording this, wants to make sure you realize that this is providential, a second famine. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be there with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my law. See, years have passed, and now Isaac has been born, and the famine is here. It's another opportunity to trust God in what's going on. He didn't receive and hear the actual words that his father Abraham had heard about going to the land. He didn't know about, perhaps, the experience of going down to Egypt and all that that would entail. Here, I see is the opportunity for every generation to learn that God's invisible hand upholds the universe and guides. God does not have grandchildren. We have to, on our own, come to faith in Him and accept His leadership in our hearts and lives. What would Abraham have done? He can't go ask Abraham. He now has to rely upon God, and God comes to, to Isaac and treats him as a father would treat him and say, this is the way that you should go. Don't go this way. Stay here in, in, in Canaan. It's going to be difficult, but don't worry. I'm going to make a way for you here. He could have very easily, lining himself up with the trade route that went down to Egypt, he could have very easily gone down the slippery slope to Egypt. But instead, God tells him, stay right here, and I will bless you. And we don't have time to read the series of events that occur, but he stays in the land and he finds water. He digs a well, he finds water, he expands his network, he begins to acquire some property in the land, and obeying his heavenly father, Isaac learned that God would meet all of his needs. This is what Jesus tried to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. 
when he said, look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into your barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you are, are you not more value than they? I think Isaac was beginning to learn this. And as Isaac's family grows, God's invisible hand directs the lives of his children, Jacob and Esau, so that when Jacob is of age, he he goes and he happens to show up at a well that just happens to be someone within the family and just happens to be that Rachel shows up at the right time. And Rachel is in need of the, the well opening to be opened, and he opens the well for her. And it was love at first sight. And God moved in those ways providentially to lead him to the intended purpose for Jacob's life. And it's God's invisible hands that brings all of this together. Now, Jacob acquired difficulty working with his uncle that was not outside of God's knowledge. He gained great wealth working with his uncle. He also gained children. He had 12 children. And one of his children, whose name is Joseph, was providentially taken down into Egypt. Maybe you remember the story of the Prince of, uh, the Prince of Egypt uh, movie that was out a while ago. That's probably been out for two decades. But Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, and, and they conceived of a way to just take him and send him down to Egypt to get him out of their, his, their hair. And even in that, God's hand of providence was at work to take him down. And just in time for what? Just in time for another famine. Another famine. Let's turn to Genesis 46. Genesis 46. The story of Joseph's life can be summarized as the province of God bringing this young man from prison up to the palace. He became trusted by Pharaoh after interpreting dreams. And he warned Pharaoh that there would be seven good years followed by seven years of famine, and he would be wise to gather resources in the seven good years to provide for his people. And he gathered so much there was enough grain for the known world. And Joseph is here, unknown to his brothers, and through, through, through the story progressing, he becomes known to his brothers, and, is, and Joseph says, hey, send back word to my father and bring him down to Egypt so that he can be here with me. This is all during a famine. What's Jacob to do? Is he supposed to leave the land? Is this the time? And in Genesis 46, verse 1, Israel, having heard that his son was alive, he said, okay, I've had enough, let's go. I want to see my son before I die. His emotions are taking over. Verse 1 says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. It's at the southern tip, just before you go into Egypt. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, 
And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make of you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. His emotions took over, but yet God shows up to reform him. Now is the time, now is the time for you to go down. Now God says, don't be afraid. I myself am going to go down with you. Now the famine was severe, but Joseph ruled with Pharaoh. And when they went down to Egypt, Joseph made sure that his family had a special place that they could live. They could go down now without losing their national identity. They could go down now without losing their relationship with God. And after Joseph goes down, he closes his, his father, excuse me, after Jacob goes down, Joseph closes the eyes of his father. And his brothers, who are worried now that their father is dead, are worried that now Joseph will take action against them. And in Genesis 50, verse 19 to 21, Joseph learns that behind everything that goes on in all of the events, it is God's hand that's directing. And he says, do not fear, my brothers, for I, am I in the place of God? As for you, you, my brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, through four generations, God's providence is seen in the life of Israel to bring them to a place of becoming a nation. So, how did Israel end up in Egypt? was the providence of God. How did you end up at the tabernacle? I'm sure that if you had time to think about it, you'll remember some of the trials that you too have gone through. The times where you've run ahead of God's word, and it's not turned out well for you. Joseph had learned through his experience to look for God's invisible hand. And this helped him overcome what might have been extreme bitterness against his, his family. Instead, he becomes a blessing to his family. He becomes the embodiment of the Abrahamic promise. Joseph was able to forgive others because he realized that what others had done to him was only permitted because God had allowed it to happen. But yet God was good. He was allowing it for reasons that he only came to discover later in his life. Him rising to the second most powerful place in Egypt provided him an avenue to be a blessing to lots of nations. You know, in your worship folder this morning, there are 
testimonies of people who are coming forward for baptism and they have a backstory. Some suffered underneath of the weight of alcohol addiction. Some had lived an atheistic life. Others battling lust. All of these were humbling pursuits. They didn't bring the satisfaction that was so desired. And God allows people at times to run outside of his, the parameters of His Word so that we can learn that it's better to live underneath of the authority of His Word. Our Heavenly Father is in the business of redeeming prodigals of people who want to run and go their own way. God is actively trying to redeem people from sin and paganism and selfishness. He has a purpose and He has a plan and He wants you, like Abraham, to be a blessing to others, to live a life that is not self-centered, that is a life lived in service of others. How well is your light shining? One testimony says that before believing Christ, he had met four different Christians. And some of those Christians were better lights than others. Are you following Christ so that you can be a blessing to others? Or are you following Christ because of what you think it will give to you? You can't coerce God. And it's a hard lesson to learn, but it's a valuable lesson to learn so that you might then be a blessing to others and experience the joy that only God can give you. But to do so first, you must come out of your self-centered paganism and turn to Christ and confess your sin and trust wholly in Him. Trust in His irrevocable word that was demonstrated by the resurrection of Christ from the grave. Death could not hold him. That's a remarkable statement of surety. His word is irrevocable, and when he forgives sin, it is cleansed completely away, never to be remembered again. And it's through that kind of a relationship with God you can become a blessing to others. So the providence of God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs His creation. I hope and pray that you can look back upon your life and say, thank you, Lord, for directing me step by step to bring me to yourself so that I could be a blessing to others. Let's pray.